It's easy to talk about the successes, but what doesn't get talked about enough is the struggle. My name is Eric Weinmayer. I've gotten the chance to ascend Mount Everest, to climb the tallest mountain in every continent, to kayak the Grand Canyon, and I happen to be blind. It's been a struggle to live what I call a no barriers life, to define it, to push the parameters of what it means. And part of the equation is diving into the learning process and trying to illuminate the universal elements that exist along the way. And that unexplored terrain between those dark places we find ourselves in and the summit exists a map. That map, that way forward, is what we call no barriers. Hey everyone, this is Eric Weinmayer. Welcome to the No Barriers podcast. And it's February. I just got back from Patagonia. So we are finally getting around to doing a year-end review of last year's favorite interviews. So we're going to listen to some interviews today and talk about what we loved about them. And uh, this is my friend Diedrich Junk, who I climbed Everest with years ago and a lot of other mountains, right, D? And uh, he produces the No Barriers podcast. So he's always on the silent end, but today he's going to you're going to actually hear his voice. Absolutely, Eric. I am so stoked for being here. And as always, it's a little nerve wracking coming out from behind the scenes, behind the silence, as you said. But here we are. And you know, you're exactly right. Despite the fact that it is February, we are going to get into this because the listeners of the show have shared with us that they love our year-end recap. So who cares that it's February? All right, well, let's dive right in. And... Uh... Like the first one we're going to talk about is this amazing guy, Matt Lewis. He went from a Navy SEAL to being an executive at a company that I spoke at. And this guy is amazing because he was so honest. As D, you were saying earlier, like he's not like some, you know, Buddhist Hindu guru or something talking about purpose in this existential way. You know, he's a real dude who was a Navy SEAL talking about purpose and how difficult it is to figure it out and define it. And he really defines it beautifully. You know, in the military, he says, you know, your purpose is laid out before you, right? It's to keep each other alive and to make it through. But when you get into the civilian world, how tricky it is to sort of uh, figure out what your purpose is in life. So check this out, right? Dee, do you have anything to add? Absolutely, I do. You know, it's funny in the sense that here we are talking about one of the most enduring questions of all time. And Matt just tackles it so simply and in a real way. And, you know, at No Barriers, we're constantly talking about purpose. So this really resonates with me and I think our listeners as well. Cool. Check it out. Matt Lewis clip rolling in three, two, one. I, I think, um, Eric, I don't know what your purpose is, but I think you've accomplished some tremendous things and are finding ways to bring other tremendous stories of light to give people inspiration. And I, I imagine to some extent your purpose is within that. And it actually made me a little nervous coming on here because <laughs> it's just a, it's a powerful, it's a powerful purpose. And, you know, you, I think everyone wants to live for a purpose that's meaningful. And, and in the military, it's sort of like, it's sort of like um, a purpose that you're, you're bought into but might not actually be your life's purpose. It's like we have a mission and, and we have other sub purposes around making sure that my team survives this. And we 
you know, do good for the world. Right. And I think it, it's sort of like a unavoidable purpose that is, exists there. And it's, it's, it's more mission than even purpose in some ways, but it, right. it's just so clear. It's so easy to just be like, okay, well, this is it. We don't die Win the mission don't let any of your friends die, you know, like that's sort of the deal. And it's easy to sort of rally around that. And I think you can see in a lot of stressful situations when people have that sort of innate external factors creating purpose, there's a lot of amazing things that happen. But then you get out, and you're like, wait, what's my purpose? Just to make money, to survive? Like, I guess that could be a purpose. But you kind of find that becomes a little shallow. And you're starting to look for things that really drive you. And I think that's an important journey that you need to go on as you transition. I think it's not just for veterans. I think there's a lot of people in the world that don't know what their purpose is. Mm -hmm. I had a, a, a really close friend um, who also works at Hover Ali, and he shared something with me that I thought was really, really interesting. It was a different paradigm shift about thinking about purpose, and I'm sharing it because it helped me start to discover my purpose, Yeah, which I think can also change, honestly. It can, can evolve over time. But he said, the purpose is the thing in your life that creates the most energy and drive for you. But a lot of times people assume that purpose has to be this sort of like noble, selfless thing that you're doing. But it actually is something typically that you selfishly get a lot of enjoyment out of that selflessly helps other people. Mm. And I was like, this sort of like light bulb moment for me where I kind of thought like, oh, if you have a purpose, it needs to be something noble. That's like all about service and like giving yourself up to something. But the reality is like, there are things that I love doing that also help other people. And I could do them all day, right? I think for me, sort of coaching and mentoring people at work and jujitsu, like wherever, I get lots of energy out of that. And I could do it all the time. I, you know, people hit me up on LinkedIn that have been in the military and I will take every single phone call selfishly because I just, I, I, I get energy out of helping them. Mm. And it was an interesting way to sort of like start vectoring in on a purpose, sense of purpose. I think sometimes people manufacture a purpose they think feels right and it creates right. like a servitude to people, but it's not something they actually get a lot of energy out of and thus it doesn't stick. Mm. So I don't know. I, I think that yeah. purpose is probably one of those things that I would caution people is hard to get to the right answer on. It takes some time. It might take some testing and iterating on in your own life of like, what what's giving me energy that I can just do? I can just do this forever, right? And sometimes people get lucky, right? Like their purpose is creating music and, you know, enjoyment for people. And they've found this sort of like trade and craft that they can also, you know, make a lot of money on. And sometimes it's the opposite way where the purpose is something you love, but you'll never be able to make a lot of money on it. But 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 something within that, I think, that driving factor is a really important thing to find in yourself and it will help you become a lot, a lot better person and much more happy. I imagine you see this a lot. Like, I feel like you touched on something that is not just your experience, but a, a lot of people, cause I've heard this with our community. We had one uh, soldier and uh, I connected him with a company uh, like an association that does electrical stuff and, and they offered him a job and he was like, but I don't want to, build electrical lines and, and fix electric, you know, lines. I, I don't want to do that. I, he, 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 his uh, experience was so intense and charged with, with purpose that 
he really struggled, you know, like, wait, now I'm going to make toilet paper. You know what I mean? But, but isn't it partly like a perspective thing where like I, I've spoken at, at companies that make toilet paper and Hey, we all use toilet paper. It's there's purpose in that too. Right. So it, in a way it's sort of trying to figure out how to feel that purpose in what you're doing. Yeah. It's, that's a really interesting thing. I have some, I have some thoughts on Eric. I, I could, this could be controversial here, but yeah, go for it. <laughs> I, I think I've, I've really spent time with the people now transitioning and then other folks to say that work for me that have sought purpose in the nature of the company they're working at. And I don't, I don't think that's a bad thing, but I've never seen it work out the way that people hoped it would. And what I mean by that is what inevitably become more important than if the company is doing some noble cause to save the world is what is the culture of the team? What are the people that you're working with like? And is purpose really at the level of toilet paper or is purpose something that comes from within you that you're trying to create? And I feel that a lot of people probably can actually live their purpose in any company. Right. If they truly know what their purpose is and they start digging into it. And if it really is a specific cause, great. But I think that fun, sometimes people try to tie their purpose to the nature of a company. And unless you're really saying like, you know, you had AJ on and I'm sure he was talking about bringing people over from Afghanistan like that, that can be a really unique purpose. That's sort of a nature of something. But Aside from that type of stuff, I think it's very hard to find purpose through the nature of a company. And I've seen a lot of people chase it. And it I just haven't seen the success there because I think part of it, it's it's so much from within you, not from the nature of the work at a company, which you'll find out sometimes there's just all kinds of things inside of it that you didn't want to know that you thought were noble on the outside, but actually aren't on the inside. And all of a sudden now your identity is tied to this thing that's a house of cards. Hey, and to be redundant, you know. Just my favorite part of what Matt says that I've taken with me is this idea that people search for purpose and it becomes sort of like a person or a dog chasing their tail. Uh, and and he, he has a different viewpoint about purpose. It's not finding it out there uh, in the world. It's actually creating it. It's actually building it. And I love that. And, and he said, you know, it's more about culture and about the team that you're part of versus the external thing. And as you remember on that you know, recent clip is, you know, I speak to companies that sell toilet paper. And that's an important thing. All of us use it. You use it, D? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so it's important. And you got to have toilet paper in the world. So how do you build purpose within your team when you're doing something like that? I remember going to... Um, uh, to this island off the coast of Maine and there's this amazing lady standing on the pier um, selling lobster rolls and the love that she put into making those lobster rolls that was purpose I mean and and I loved them they were amazing I remember sitting in uh, like a Carl's Jr. and there was a woman that was working there and she was uh, uh, neurodiverse she had a cognitive challenge and uh she was bringing us napkins and bring us over our food. And she had a huge smile on her face. And I thought that's purpose right there written all over her, you know? So it's like, how do you bring purpose to whatever you do in, in life and bring it from within? Let me share one other thing 
before we jump into Lonnie, you know, chat GPT has been in the news a lot lately. I'm not sure if you're aware of that artificial intelligence chat bot that's been amazingly accurate for a lot of things. Anyways, I experimented with asking it, what was the purpose of life? Or really more specifically, how does somebody find their purpose? And it spit out a ton of actually pretty relevant information. But the one thing that I was surprised that resonated with me was that it said, remember, finding your purpose is not always straightforward or quick, but it can be a fulfilling and rewarding journey. So I'll just add that little tidbit to our conversation today. Yeah. So bring it, everyone. Yeah, I'm, I'm taking that to heart. D, thanks. Lonnie Bedwell, kayak the Grand Canyon with blind Navy veteran, badass. I remember going into a rapid called Horn Rapid. It's like a huge, you know, nine out of 10 on the Grand Canyon scale. You got to squeak between these two giant rock horns and then cut left, or you go into what's called the Land of the Giants, which is a pile of rocks that you do not want to go into. So once you cut through those horns, you cut left, break into an eddy through a huge couple waves, and then and then you're safe. And I asked Lonnie, I said, what's your fear level right now? Like, mine's like a nine out of 10. And he goes, about a two. I'm like, Jesus, Lonnie. <laughs> the hell? So anyway, Lonnie's amazing. But one of the things I was like, really curious about was, you know, like Lonnie, you're always so perpetually positive and like full of motivation. But like a normal person, did you go into a dark place? Did you were you down for a while? And and or were you just like, you know, just snap your fingers and you're suddenly like, you know, Mr. Positive, the Mr. Motivation? I, I, I'm really critical and cynical about that because I don't think it really works that way. And Lonnie had a beautiful response. You got something to add, D? Nope. Let's just get to the good stuff. Rolling the Lonnie clip in three, two, one. <laughs> but I definitely, definitely did. You know, like, uh, I remember sitting fighting back tears. But the one thing that I can say that I believe is, you know, uh, there's a story, you know, that I wrote in my book and I tell all the time about my daughter, my youngest daughter helping me mow around my pond or my, excuse me, my outbuilding yeah. little barn out here. And that was just two months after my accident. And I think that happening so quickly prevented me from falling probably as deeply as, as I could have. And sometimes uh, I want to say as deeply as others do, you know, and, you know, it really set me on my feet. My, all three of my girls were instrumental in that saying, okay, daddy, come on, you can do this. And uh, while the, while the adults were still saying, no, 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 you know, the girls were saying, let's go. And that was just huge. And, that is awesome. So mm. you know, that's that's a, that's a goal now, and I'm sure you know. I know it is you. As, as soon as we find anybody with any kind of a disability, you know, try to get them reengaged as quickly as possible. I think is instrumental in their in in a faster, more successful uh, rehabilitation. Yeah, people believe in you and push you to get out there you're going to progress yeah. faster. And that's what your daughters yeah. did for you. And Bug was like little at the time. And I think you were laying on the couch, just moping and. Yeah. Uh, Literally and laying on, on the couch, fighting, fighting back tears. Yeah. And, and then yeah, she, Bug was fine. Yeah. What did she do? What? How did she push you? I think she got you back well, on a lawnmower. <laughs> yeah. That's just, you know, I'd walk, I'd 
I finally, you know, that's the first time I got up and went outside by myself, took the handle out of the broom stick, uh, you know, didn't have any mobility training. You had any mobility. So you're using a broom as a cane. Okay. Yeah. 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 And didn't know how to use it. Just sweeping it back and forth in front of me and walking across the yard and hit the edge of my little field. Weeds were up to my chest and worked my way down the along edge of that field and sensed something out in front of me. And it was my little barn. And and I stepped out into the weeds a little bit and then hit the barn with broomsticks and then just turned fought back more tears and uh, ran into her. And she asked me what was wrong. And when I told her I couldn't get into that barn without walking through chest high weeds and I couldn't see to mow them. You know, she simply said, I'll help you, daddy. And I was like, what? She said, yeah, I'll help you, daddy. And, you know, daddy, I'll help you. And I was just, I was just stunned. I, you know, literally stunned. You know, like you're five, I'm blind, no way. And, and what if you get hurt? And, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to be helping you, not you helping me and all this kind of stuff. All these what ifs just going through my head. And as I stood there, I just heard, you know, trust me, you can do it. Trust me. And uh, so she took my finger and led me to the garage. We jumped on riding lawnmower and she helped me get it. You know, after dodging the truck, tree and fuel tank, she helped me get it out to that little barn. And I shut it off, had her get off and go back up the house and watch. And then I re-engaged, started up the mower, engaged the blade put my hand on the barn and mowed a lap. So D, that story of his daughter, Bug, is so powerful to me. It's such a clear, colorful story, man. I mean, like part of this healing process when tough things happen to us is uh, having people in your life, right? Like Bug, like your kids, people who believe in you, people who rely on you, people who you rely on. And she got him back uh, uh, mowing that lawn, which is cool. One time uh, Lonnie told me, I said, uh, how do you know when you're getting near your pond? And he said, when I start swimming. So maybe it's not a perfect system. But I mean, like, I know it's not rocket science, but this idea of community is so important within No Barriers. Like, I mean, I needed a community. When I was a kid going blind in high school, uh, my freshman year, I remember I had this amazing guidance counselor, Peg Reddy, I don't know what she's doing now, but if she's listening, man, I'd love to reconnect with her. And I think one time she literally leaned in and she said, Eric, I know you're a little asshole now, but someday you're going to find your way. And I was like, wow, somebody believes in this skinny little greasy pimple faced dork. You know, that that was powerful to me. Um, so, yeah, we need people. I remember... Uh, D, you know, you remember my dad who passed away this last June. Um, when I was a kid and I was going blind, I used to love to ride my mountain bike down the driveway. And I had these wooden ramps that I built. It was in the time where Evil Knievel was still pretty big. And I'd go flying off this wooden ramp. I'd fly through the air and I'd land on this other landing wooden ramp. Uh, and I'd like ride around the cul-de-sac, my arm in the air. And one day I couldn't see the ramps anymore and I, I skittered off the side and I think I might've, there might've been a little blood and I pushed my bike up the hill into the garage and I was looking just really bummed out. My dad was painting uh, a, a, like a chest or something with a can of spray paint and he got an idea. And so the next morning I came down to try again to ride my bike and jump the ramp. And I noticed that it, the ramp was painted a very bright orange. Uh, and, uh, you know, my dad had done that. He could have easily said, like, no more jumping that your bike. That's, like, preposterous as a person who's almost blind. But instead, he painted the ramp orange. And, uh, you know, my dad was a fighter pilot in Vietnam, and it was like he, he had sort of, like, 
laid out the runway, you know, he had paved the runway for me and my life and my opportunities. Uh, and man, I mean, like these things where people believe in us, man, I'm going to tear up. I'm sure you got stories like that, D, right? Oh, dude. I mean, I'm a parent and I've got thousands of pictures on my phone and every few days or every week, my phone prompts me with a picture of some event or some memory, some milestone in life. Kind of is amazing how they're, how the, how our phones know us so well that uh, they can deliver these moments to us that literally sometimes make me stop in my tracks looking back on one thing or another. I'm sure that happens to a ton of us, to all of us really. But yeah, the little things, these little moments. And I think a lot of it comes down to just these small acts uh, sometimes go unrecognized, uh, especially like the story that you just shared and the story about Lonnie. It's these small little moments where somebody believes in you and gives you that strength to go forward the next day or a week. Here you are decades later, drawing strength from that moment, that memory that you had with your dad from so long ago. And it's really powerful when like a seven-year-old believes in you because that's innocence. That's like <laughs> a person fully believing, uh, not jaded by the world yet, you know, saying that's my daddy. That's not a blind guy. <laughs> Let's move into this next clip with Lonnie. You might want to cover your ears because it's about Lonnie, how he got hurt, um, got shot in the face, as, as some of you know, shoving a stick down his throat. So it's pretty graphic, but uh, I'll, we'll, we'll talk about why this is an important clip uh, afterwards. Lonnie, part two in three, two, one. I was just back here literally a mile from my house where I'm sitting right now. I had harvested a turkey the day before, so I didn't even have a gun with me. I was just out there calling for him. And we had separated so I could call and Hopefully you could get a shot of turkey and was going to slowly work our way back together. This is a friend of yours that you're with. Yeah. yeah. Good friend. Really good friend. Us raised together. We was raised since we were you know, children as well. Same age. You know, our birthdays are literally two months apart and we've known each other our entire lives. Our fathers were raised together. We were and our children as well. So, so I was just out there in the woods calling for him. And I don't think either one of us. One of us really knows what happened, but it was thick and dense, and he was shooting at a turkey and accidentally shot me. I took a full shotgun blast to the face at about nine steps and uh, instantly went to the, in the dark. I have about had about 85 pellets up in my uh, face, head, and everything else. So. Do you remember that moment? Like, were you conscious, conscious yeah, of, of everything? Yeah, yeah you never really yeah. lost consciousness. In fact, I think you said if you had lost consciousness, you had so much blood like pulling in your mouth and stuff, it would have coagulated and choked you, right? Yeah, correct. It, uh, uh, yeah, if I'd lost consciousness, I wouldn't have made it. And uh, uh, that's literally, to begin with, you know, my buddy took his finger and cleared my airway so I could take a breath. And then he leaned me against a tree and ran for help. And it got to the point where I couldn't clear my throat with my finger. I couldn't reach in there deep enough. And I was fortunate enough to find a little bush, uh, break a little stem off a little bush. And I was literally shoving it down my throat to clear my airway. And then it finally clotted enough above my airway, I guess, that uh, I was able to clear a little bit of a passage and keep breathing because it got to the point where I lost so much blood, I, I literally couldn't even move. Uh. And uh, just was just kind of sitting there panting for air, and and then they put me on a stretcher, 
carried me across the stripper hills, put me in a boat from a boat to ambulance, to ambulance to Hilo. And once I got to the Hilo, they intubated me. And that's the last thing I remember before I woke up from surgery. And the doc told me, he said, I don't know how you're here, dude, but he said 15 more minutes, you wouldn't have been here. There's no doubt. All right. So cool clip. I mean, graphic about, you know, the, this amazing guy who had the frame of mind to like shove a stick down his throat. But that's that's not the important part of the clip for me. The, the coolest part for me is the fact that this guy who was turkey hunting with Lonnie, they were good friends growing up, shot Lonnie in the face. Lonnie almost died, um, is fully blind, uh, will always be blind, will never get his sight back. He forgave that guy. I was like, how do you do that? He's like, I just did. It wasn't his fault. And we hunt today. Remember, he said, I, we still hunt together. And, man, that kind of forgiveness, that's freaking crazy, right? You know, my gut reaction is that it's just so hard to fathom. And when he talks about it, it's so casual. It's so matter of fact. Like, for him, there was just no other option. Yeah. Like, how would I not forgive this guy, you know? And, and so, you know, uh, we, we work with a lot of folks within No Barriers that have gone through tough situations, whether it be a physical disability or an emotional trauma. And, and it takes a lot to, to heal. And, um, and there's a lot of, like, bullshit that you hear, like, in movies. You know, like, you, you snap your fingers and, you know, and now you're, you're suddenly changed and healed forever. But it's this long, continuous process. And it's a hard process. And so at No Barriers, I am no expert, but I really want to understand what that real authentic process actually looks like, because then we can help more people uh, when we hear real honest stories. And so the next clip is uh, my friend Sebastian Carrasco, or we call him Zuko, um, who we went last April to Ecuador and we helped him climb Cotopaxi. He's a quadriplegic. And his friends built this amazing sled on skis and about 10 of us are around him pushing and pulling uh, while his friends run up the mountain and uh, with a rope and they pound a picket into the snow, which becomes an anchor. And he has a boat winch on his sled and he's cranking his way up the mountain. But uh, Zuko has a lot to say about how loss and grief, grief, can sort of begin to transform into something else. Okay, here we go. Rolling the Zuko clip in three, two, one. I mean, I think there's a kind of energy that comes from you that's so positive, that's that uh, shows this gratitude, this thankfulness, this appreciation, uh, appreciation for your friends. And I think that just attracts people. I've been really lucky in that way as well. I feel... So fortunate that, yeah. you know, like if you had been this angry, bitter guy, I don't think, I don't know if your friends would have stuck with you, you know, because eventually they'd probably give up. Totally. No, yeah, totally. I, I remember uh, being in, in this point uh, after my accident and, and I remember uh, saying, okay, well, uh, when I walk again, I will be happy. Or I remember going out for shopping and I, I, I can see people seeing me with a lot of sadness and I hated that. And I knew that uh, I could accomplish a lot of things through uh, victimizing myself, but that's not going to last alone. You know, as soon as you victimize yourself, you become angry, you, be, you become, uh, you make people feel bad. And that's what yeah. people don't like. When you are thankful, like the way you are saying, you attract a lot of people and, uh, and it's just, uh, 
this amazing energy like you know it's uh and i love to have my friends around because uh, and especially in the mountain because it creates such a an amazing energy we discuss uh, from different things and and but we laughed a lot we we enjoy that a lot so i think it's like you said, yeah, it's exactly that. To be thankful with them and with life, and and they wanna be part of it, you know. Yeah, I've done so many things. Not it's not that life is still easy. I think we life is still full of surprises, and I think uh, we create these battles. And sometimes we want we don't accept what life is given us to us. But if we take what life is given us to us and uh, accept it and go with the flow of life, sometimes it's not easy, you know, like. I didn't want to become a, a paraplegic, of course, um, but uh, it's up to us if we want to de- to accept that, you know. Yeah. But how I accept this and how this uh, changed on, on on my head, I think uh, it started with forgiveness. I think uh, um, the hardest part was to forgive myself for uh, that accident uh, or the mistake that I did, and uh, to forgive my my belay partner. Uh, because even though he wasn't a hundred percent responsible, he had a part of it, you know. So, um, uh, but I couldn't forgive him if I didn't forgive myself first. So as soon as I forgive myself, I was able to forgive him. And um, one of the big things that helped me out to accept this it was sports. Uh, when I tried the hand cycle. For the first time, and I realized that I was able to to do things, to have a different life, to to set uh, new objectives and, and be able to accomplish them. Yeah, so Zuko is another guy that just seems perpetually positive, you know. And and he fully admitted that after he got hurt, he's a quadriplegic. You know, he was on a ropes course building it for a company, and he jumped off and thought he was on belay, and he wasn't. He broke his his back, uh, or actually even higher than that. And, and he forgave his partner. He forgave the guy who did that, and he had to forgive himself. I mean, he said that was the key to healing, is first forgiving himself. And, you know, and, and he was in a dark place, Diedrich, remember? Like, he, he talked about when he got hurt, it was a week after the birth of his second daughter. Man, he worried, like, how he's going to help his kids to ride a bike or camp or or climb all the things he loved to do. Uh, so yeah, he, he fully admitted he went dark, but he said it was over time, right? That those feelings of, of, of loss, of self blame, uh, of, um, of fear, you know, um, of shame, uh, they began to give way to these new feelings, uh, forgiveness, uh, gratitude, acceptance. And my favorite line and I can't remember whether it's actually in this clip or not, but it, he said, those new feelings began to flow out of me like a river from my soul. Man, mm. that's like, that's beautiful. And so it gives us hope, right, that, that we, can, we can heal uh, even in the darkest of times. Yeah, the one thing that resonated a lot with me when we did the original interview with Zuko was that he's just so truthful to himself, right? I mean, there was no... He, he obviously had given it a lot of thought. And when he was describing the journey that he went through, he left no stone unturned. And it seemed that maybe, you know, that was critical to him turning the corner. Yeah, what a good man. Indeed, indeed. All right, let's move on to our next 
interview with John Foley. He's a Blue Angel pilot. And Eric, tell tell us about your connection with John. Yeah, I mean, my dad was, uh, he flew A4 Skyhawks in Vietnam. And uh, I remember when I um, met John for the first time, I, I called him, I said, John, I'm so sorry, man. But my dad's like, we'll love this. And I called him up and, and John actually was kind enough to talk to my dad for like 15 minutes. Uh, but I mean, John's clip, I mean, right, D, you'll probably admit, I mean, it's really just the fact that he's a badass and 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 he flies hundreds of miles an hour like six inches away from the next guy's wing and how incredible this teamwork is and I, and I, I was really fascinated at the time like because I thought when you're doing something so precise and to such a high end it's all head it's all logic it's all skill you got to leave the heart behind and he said, absolutely not. He shot me down. He said, absolutely not. It's, it's mostly heart. And I thought that was wild because I, I would have thought there was zero room for your heart in this precision. You know, for a minute there, I was going to ask you to remind me why we had John on the program, because he's a little bit outside of kind of some of the usual guests that we have. But, you know, the thing that resonated with me was that, yeah, of course he's a badass, but he's also a great storyteller, as you'll see in this, and you'll you'll listen in this upcoming clip. But the other thing was this idea that nobody gets to the top by snapping their fingers. I mean, that's obvious. There's a long process involved. The thing that isn't obvious is that once you get to the top, Sometimes you have to start all over again. When you and I came off Everest, we weren't just looking at each other thinking, now what's the next highest mountain we'd climb? Because it just simply didn't exist. You know, we had to do a reset. And this just backs up the point that John makes. We start singing his circle of life. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, let me see if I can complete the circle here and tie it back to something that Matt Lewis said at the top of the episode. You know, by all outward appearances, our purpose was to climb Everest, but if our sole purpose was simply the physical act and nothing deeper than, yeah, figuring out where to go after coming off the mountain would be pretty damn hard. Yeah, Uh, and I can relate to that, you know, so viscerally, like after climbing the seven summits and the mountains had become my comfort zone in a weird way. Uh, at 40 years old, launching into this new sport of whitewater kayaking for the blind (laughs) and just being absolutely terrified absolutely vulnerable to sick with nausea to the point where I was throwing up on the side of the river. And I'm like, wait a second, I'm supposed to be the stud who climbed Everest. Why am I puking on the side of the river? And it is, it's like, you're starting over and starting over scary as hell. Right. Find, and we're find, constantly doing it. Okay. Finding a new purpose. Let's just stop blabbing there and get into John Foley. Awesome. Here we go in three, two, one. Connecting at a heart level. That's like, Maybe that's, I wasn't even thinking about this, but I was kind of flirting with this idea of, you know, being in the military, being a blue angel. I I could imagine that your heart gets left behind because you have to be perfect. You have to be amazing. You're flying six inches apart from each other. 18, 18. I, I, I just imagine that the heart piece might almost get in the way. No, actually, Eric, it's just the opposite. I'm thinking about climbing, you know, it's, okay. it's not just physical, right? It's the right. mental side and the emotional side probably is, you know, you'll have to tell me, but in flying and with the blues, uh, I like to say you needed to connect the heart and the head because it wasn't enough to be just 
in your head. Yes, there's process, there's procedures. I mean, when you're flying 18 inches from a 22 ton jet at 500 miles per hour, you know, you gotta be focused. I'm thinking about you, you know, hanging on to a, a cliff, right? You have to be focused, but if your heart isn't in it, if you know, if you're not doing it for what I call a purpose larger than self, um, then it's, it's, it's not the same. So I actually think most of my flying was emotional. Most of my flying was uh, the joy of pushing yourself to absolute limits and connecting back to why you're doing that. You know, as, as I think about though with the jets, and maybe this is a good metaphor with your climbing, is we don't start as a blue angel. You know, you don't start flying 36 inches, 18 inches from another jet. You're a student pilot, man. You're just trying to survive the airplane. You're just trying to do the checklist. You're just trying, you know, to land the jet. And then it's a definitely step-by-step -step approach and lots of hours go into it, right? So you learn first off your emergency procedures, you practice on simulators, you finally get in the airplane and that's totally different. And guess what you're flying? Small prop planes. Well, they go slow. So they allow you more time. And then you just start, just like you, you just keep up in the game where now you start flying jets. Then you start flying faster jets. Then you start landing jets on aircraft carriers. Then you start dogfighting. And all of a sudden, as the complexity goes up, so does your skills. And at some point, you become a blue angel and that, and we take our pilots from the instructor ranks. Then you start all over again because you've just raised the game. No kidding, 300%. Okay, that was fantastic. And moving right along, let's jump into the next clip with our friend Hobie. And in this particular episode, we had our good friend and Paralympic cyclist, Billy Lister, as a guest co-host. So Eric, tell us tell us why we had Hobie on the show. Well, Hobie's a blind guy and he's a taste tester. He's like an expert in sensory perception. So he works with all these companies, helping them to build their products and to d develop ingredients that create certain taste sensations and smell sensations. Really, really fascinating guy. Um, but I think the interesting part, maybe it's only interesting when you're blind or disabled, but uh, I asked him, like, you know, when you go blind, like, everyone assumes, like, these other senses kick in, like, you know, it's bionic senses, you know, like Daredevil, which, by the way, I freaking love that movie. I mean, excuse me, not the movie, the, the Netflix series. Um, but yeah, when you're when you're born or you go blind or you lose any kind of uh, sense, yeah, suddenly these new bionic senses emerge and you can smell a McDonald's cheeseburger from five miles away and um, it just doesn't work that way. And so I was really curious about, you know, w what it was like for him. Yeah. And for our listeners, I don't think you're going to encounter two blind dudes having a serious discussion about a topic that people usually joke about. So let's get into it. Going with Hobie Clip in three, two, one. I know the difference between a quarter and a penny hitting the ground. Just and, and so maybe that's a question for Hobie because people ask me this all the time. They go, when you lose your sight, do your other senses get better? And I'm always really careful about answering that because... I, I don't want to give this misperception that like, you know, once you lose your sight, all your senses become bionic and you're like some kind of superhero and you can smell a cheese sandwich from across the neighborhood. You can smell a McDonald's cheeseburger cooking, you know? We don't become daredevil. Yeah, you become daredevil. <laughs> and so I'm really careful about that. But also I do know about neuroplasticity and things like that. Like when I started learning Braille, 
It was just indecipherable dots on a page. And over time, they began to enlarge and, and I began to notice more details. And I think those are neural connections being built um, to my fingertips. So in a way, I think maybe you do actually become a little bit bionic. You know, I don't think it's that, I think that's a great question, first of all, Eric, but I don't think it's that anything becomes better than other people's senses. I, I think that anyone could train themselves to do sighted, blind, deaf hearing, no matter what, whatever we do. Like, you know, you look at a, a great guitarist, I'll use this analogy again, and you say, how does she do that, right? Wow, that's just amazing. You know, I am blown away by that. The truth is the reason she can play guitar that way is because she practices. For Eric and I, if we're going to cross a street, we literally put our lives on the line. And if we're not listening to traffic and we walk into perpendicular traffic that are driving on the street that we're crossing, we're done. So we learn to use our ears really well and differently than sighted people do. But I don't think my hearing's any better than yours, Billy, for instance. I don't. I, I think that I've learned to use my hearing differently than you use your hearing, but I don't think it's any better. And I don't think my sense of smell or taste are any better than other people's. I have literally just spent decades, and I mean literally decades, practicing and honing them. But I don't think my skills are any better because I'm blind than anyone else. I just think that I have had the ability to refocus my attention on my other senses. By the way, don't you think a lot of sighted people, uh, Billy, are like, are pretty good at this too, actually. They're just, they have a natural inclination. I was walking through the airport one year and they said, I, I was like, well, how do I find the bathrooms? Like, how am I ever going to know where the bathrooms are? The sighted security guard walked up to me. He goes, yeah, he goes, the way you tell is that it goes from carpet and then it goes to like a hard surface. And where the hard surface is, that's where the bathrooms are found. And I'm like, how the hell? Did this sighted guy know that? <laughs> like he's, it, he's a better blind guy than me. It is. It is. And I think, it, I think, I think that gets to a, a broader global problem, you know, that I think a lot of people suffer from. And that's just a lack of observational skills. Um, you know, regardless of what senses that, that you're using is that people have a tendency to, to live in their, to live, to live in their own, in their own world and in their own bubble um, and, and don't have the observational skills or adapted those skills, uh, you know, to notice things like that. I want to take this minute just to make a quick point, Billy, which is that I've never met one sighted person who doesn't want the best and, and literally is like against blind people. And I hear all this talk about, oh, blind people are discriminated against this, that, and yeah. the other. That's not the case. It's just that they don't know any blind people. And when you meet someone, and Eric, I, I think you can you can attest to this, but when I meet someone who like grew, especially someone who grew up with a blind adult at a young age who was capable and independent, they have literally no barriers for what they think we can do. Uh, it's like you can do whatever the heck you want. So yeah, as you can see, Hobie doesn't think that you know your your senses get any better. You just it's just all about practice and focus and honing. Uh, these abilities and anyone can do it you don't have to lose something to gain something um, man I remember and I'm admitting this Diedrich it's embarrassing but I when I was uh, I just went blind my parents sent me to blind computer camp and I was sitting around the cafeteria table with these blind kids and uh, we were listening to like it was like in the what 80s and we were listening to Black Sabbath 
and that kid had Black Sabbath hammering on his boom box, and all the blind kids were like uh, beating on the table with their hands like drums, like, and they were all really good, and they all had great rhythm, and I'm like, what the hell? Am I the only blind guy who goes blind and has zero freaking rhythm? Like, I thought I was supposed to be blessed with this musical genius, but I clearly got left out. So um, I can attest that, you know, the bionic idea doesn't really happen. But what Hobie is talking about is a lot to do with neuroplasticity, growing new, new skills and, and, and new abilities. Uh, but it's a lot more complicated than we think. Neuroplasticity. There you have it. All right, let's move on into the final clip of the show with guest Peter McBride. He's also one of these individuals that we interviewed that fell a little bit outside of our usual track of guests. Uh, you know, guests that have overcome incredible adversity that for most of us can just be hard to comprehend. But don't get me wrong, Peter's put some pretty difficult challenges in front of himself, like walking 750 miles across Grand Canyon National Park. Peter's a photographer, a working photographer, and he's been at it for decades. He had this idea, which was, how can a photographer versed in a visual language use that to describe something we experience with our ears? He tackled that idea with a book called Seeing the Silence, the Beauty of the World's Most Quiet Places. Eric, tell us more about Peter. He's a good buddy of yours. Uh, he's, such a, he's such a hero of mine, right? Yours too, right? Amazing photographer beautiful writer. Well, I can't say he's a good photographer. I've never seen his work, but are you saying he's a good photographer? I can vouch for that. Okay, good. So, and he just had in the book all these amazing stories about like when the mechanical world, when the crazy loud world subsides, like as we all noticed in COVID, uh, you know, noticing the bird sounds and uh, versus the highway sounds, you know, and the animals coming all back into our backyards and and just the, the quiet moments. Um, he tells all these amazing stories of the sounds of nature, uh, like swimming uh, under the water and a killer whale pinging him with its sonar, like kind of like a, a whale high five. And it literally, he felt that sound percussively, like in, in, in the cavities of his body, just it shot him back like a foot. And how cool those experiences are in nature. And uh, I just got back from Patagonia. And, you know, I'm a guy who has trouble um, with silence sometimes. Like, I always want to be listening to a book or, or be listening to NPR or, or, or something like that. I have trouble with silence. But in Patagonia, I remember just lying there in my tent with the wind howling in this beautiful valley called the Valley of Silence. It's not really that silent. What you hear is wind all the time. And then just getting comfortable with those beautiful sounds that are so much more subtle than in, you know, the, the, the cities and things like that. But like the sound of rockfall tumbling down a glacier, the sound of wind, uh, the, the sound of, of, of space, of sound vibrations moving out infinitely through space as we climbed higher up the rock face. The, the, the sound of, of condor wings uh, flapping above me one time, you know, it was, it's stunning. And so we'll listen to this clip, but hopefully it's an encouragement for folks to really uh, tap into those beautiful, subtle sounds. All right, let's do this. Rolling Peter clip in three, two, one. 
I'm dying to share this because when I was going down the Grand Canyon, Timmy O'Neill, who you know, he's an awesome, crazy guy. And uh, he's like, I know this place. We're going to go check it out. And we walked like 10 minutes and it was nighttime over to this uh, sort of side canyon where there was a, a lake. And, uh, and these frogs, he started croaking. That guy's this incredible impersonator. So he started croaking like a frog. And I am not kidding. Hundred frogs replied in, in 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 unison like a chorus, and he would he was like the frog leader, and they would re, they would um, respond, and it was very musical, and it was insanely beautiful. And I thought, God, this is like the highlight of the whole trip. This, I don't know, it was just, it was again another goosebump moment. So I kind of had my own sound. Um, experience in the Grand Canyon. And, and I was thinking about you as, as that happened, by the way. So you had your frog whispering moment. Yeah, it was incredible. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that guy, he, sh- I thought he should be a frog King. I didn't know that Timmy was the, fr- the frog, you know, choir singer. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was incredible. They t- a- totally thought he was like their God. <laughs> <laughs> well, frogs are, frogs are great segue on this subject. Cause they, they use sound when they're all croaking. That's a way for them to protect themselves. So if they're all croaking in unison, their predators can't figure out where they're croaking from. It's like they've put up this like little croaking force field over them. Yeah. But what's interesting is this, as the world, you know, in noisier places, if there's like jets flying over them or cars, is they all get freaked out and they stop croaking. And then for them to kind of get back up to the, or wait for Timmy to show up and get them back in sync, and start getting the crog, the croaking force field kind of up and going again, they're they're out of rhythm and then they get plucked off by birds or or whatnot, whatever's looking right. for them. And so it's um uh, so it's really interesting because I started learning from the Grand Canyon and other places down there how important kind of soundscapes are for so many of these species. And you know, and us too. I mean, just mental health is um, you know, it's it's been a challenge, I think, for a lot of us. For me, in particular, COVID really kind of threw me off my my rails. And um, but but back to the Grand Canyon and this book is the when I was down there is this um, this concept of stillness and silence was so hard for me to document because again I was you know down there doing a film and and predominantly a photography assignment for National Geographic. I couldn't document the silence. And so it really stuck with me. And so when I pitched it to the um, publisher, I said, you know, these are going to be photographs that try to instill silence or really stillness and beauty. But it's they're also going to be about animals and wildlife because so many of these species depend on um, natural soundscapes that are kind of embedded on, on a foundation of silence. If they can't hear each other because of us and all our mechanical noise then they have challenge. And so I think that's where the book started. Um, COVID, which was the greatest period of quietude is the, the, the COVID lockdown. I'm yeah. Seismatologists that really kind of got the book going. And I think that's, that was a coincidence, to- right? The timing of COVID because everyone tapped into silence, like highways, you know, they stopped hearing cars. They birds came back to their yards Right, like, or yeah. was was that just a, a weird coincidence? Well, it was funny because the publisher had already kind of signed on to this, and then COVID hit, and it it sort of just pushed it forward. 
but it, it really solidified it for me. And, and, uh, I think, um, this experience you mentioned of swimming with, with Orca, that, that was kind of came about during COVID and I got special permission and did the whole quarantining in Northern Norway to swim with the Orca and, and listen to them because they were, they weren't talking louder. They were just talking more. And that was because the mechanical background din of us humans had disappeared for a period. And suddenly they're like, Hey, we can finally hear each other again. So well, the lockdown sucked for us as humans. It was like a huge windfall for nature and wildlife. They were like, wow, I can hear Frank and Susie over there. You know. Well, the silence we've got right now is about to be imploded by my kids getting home from school and banging on the glass here, making funny faces at me. So let's, uh, let's wrap it up. Any final thoughts about Peter? I've got his book right here. I'll just go out and buy his book, Seeing Silence. Yeah. It's a stunning book, and, uh, and I really loved it. And, and hey, you know, I wrote the foreword, so <laughs> a little, throwing out a little shameless commercialism. Happy to throw a little, little love to anyone's way, as a matter of fact. But, yeah, that, this has been fun, Eric. And, yep, those were the highlights of the year, just some of the highlights of the year. Obviously, there's a ton more episodes from 2022, so I'd encourage everyone to get out and uh, – have a listen. But yeah, this was just a little sampling. Uh, those are some of our favorites. It. Not to say that the others weren't favorites. The others were great too, but uh, those were special. And I uh, hope you enjoyed the year. And we got a great year of guests coming up ahead. And uh, I should mention that uh, we also have the dates for our next No Barriers Summit at Copper Mountain, Colorado, June 25th. Through, excuse me, June. What am I talking about? August 25th through the 27th. So I'll be there. Dedrick, you'll be there, I bet, and I uh, yep. hope everyone's going to attend. Uh, we had no barriers are coming out of COVID with a vengeance, with a flurry, man. Just re-engaging, recommitting to excellence in our programming, how to c- increase our impact. So um, our events this summer are going to be amazing. We have our What's Your Everest event uh, in Colorado as well, uh, June 10th, and then we have later in the summer uh, our No Barrier Summit. So I hope everyone will come out and join us wonderful um, experience to help people think about how they're going to break through barriers in their own lives. Right, D? What's within you is stronger than what's in your way. Don't forget it. We did it. No barriers to everyone. The production team behind this podcast includes producer Diedrich Chonk. That's me. Sound design, editing, and mixing by Tyler Kotman. Marketing and graphics support from Stone Ward and web support by Jamlo. Special thanks to the Dan Ryan Band for our intro song, Guidance. And thanks to all of you for listening. We know that you've got a lot of choices about how you can spend your time, and we appreciate you spending it with us. If you enjoy this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to it, share it, and give us a review. Show notes can be found at nobarrierspodcast.com. That's nobarrierspodcast.com. There's also a link to shoot me an email with any suggestions for this show or any ideas you've got at all. Thanks so much and have a great day.